Amen. Good morning, church. Y'all awake this morning? I know it's the 8.30. This is earlier than we typically meet. I know some of y'all have been up for like three hours, and you're thinking, man, it's almost lunchtime. Uh, but for most of us, we like to sleep in. And so, uh, good morning. And so this week, we are continuing in this series that we're calling Christ-Centered, Glimpses of the Gospel in the Old Testament. And so, so often we think about the good news of Jesus, we think about only the New Testament. We think about the four Gospels, or we think about the letters of Paul that speak so clearly about Jesus. However, God gives us little glimpses of the gospel all throughout the Bible that this was his plan. This was his plan from the beginning of time to rescue us from our sin. And so last week we looked at the first sin of mankind. If you were here, you know that we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. They were given one thing not to do, right? One thing. God said, you can do anything you want. Just don't do this one thing. And what did they do? They did the one thing. Uh, If you have children, you understand that. Um, But they were led astray by the cunning words of a serpent. We know that serpent to be the devil through the context that we looked at last week, the New Testament authors. And God had no choice but to remove them from this place of perfect provision. He kicked them out of the garden. But before he did, he told them that one day Eve's seed, a child of Eve, would be bitten by the snake and would taste death, but at the same time would crush the serpent's head. And we talked about that this was foretelling, pointing forward to Jesus who would come on our behalf and defeat sin and death for us. So today I want to look at three questions that come after this. Three questions from Genesis 4 through 9. All right, so we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. So question number one, what happened after the garden? Question number one, what happened after the garden? Surely they were able to get things in order and start living for God. Let's look at it. Eve, no doubt. You can go on and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. That's where we're going to begin and start working from there. Eve, no doubt, had high hopes for her first son. Imagine, God has just said, there is a, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He's, God, has, Jesus, God has just told Eve that, and then their first child is born. Could this be the snake crusher, right? Instead, she got a human killer. Her firstborn was Cain. He got jealous about his, uh, of his brother Abel, and this is recorded in Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's, let's go out in the field together. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. You may think, Last week we talked about that eating the fruit was sin. And, and I said, man, it's easy to think that eating that fruit wasn't that big of a deal. All they did was take a bite of a, some sort of fruit. How in the world can that be? But none of us will argue that this isn't bad, right? None of us will make the argument that, yeah, murder. What? That's not that big a deal, right? None of us will do that. Cain got frustrated with his brother. As we talked about last week, Remember, before eating from the tree in the garden, God defined for man what was right and what was wrong. We talked about that. But when Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it, now the weight and the responsibility of defining right and wrong was on the shoulders of man. And so, here Cain is, frustrated with his brother, and what does he perceive the right thing to do to be? To kill his brother. 
Do you see how quickly this got out of hand? We're one generation from the garden, and we've already got to murder. That's the big one, okay? <laughs> that's, that's what we think of as the big one, right? We're one generation from the garden. We've got brother-on-brother brother murder, but it gets worse. Six generations later, we see Cain go and build a city, and we see developing things come from Cain's family. It almost seems to be like there's some good things, but six generations into Cain's family, we have a guy named Lamech who comes and he takes two wives instead of one, which becomes a bad problem all throughout the Old Testament. But he's also a murderer. Verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. How messed up is this? Cain's descendant is singing a song about his murderousness. We have six generations, we've one generation, we've got murder. Six generations later, we've got the celebration of murder. We are in a mess. Seven, now we're seven generations from the first sin. So to answer the question, what happened after the garden? This is point number one for you note takers. Man continued in wickedness. Man continued in wickedness. The sin of the garden continued on, and it actually seemed to progressively intensify. And then in chapter 6, which we don't even have time to touch on, you can study this on your own this week, but mankind continues to spiral out of control in some sort of cosmic rebellion that was taking place. And it's into this existence of Genesis 6 that God says, I will destroy the earth. It's into, that ex- it's into this issue that he announces, I'm going to flood the earth and kill its inhabitants. And so this leads to a, the second question that we want to look at. Question number two, wasn't the flood a little bit excessive? Okay, when you think about it, some of you have grown up in church and you've never, you've never even pondered the question because you just accepted the fact that God flooded the earth. Church, God drowned every human being on earth apart from eight people. That's heavy. Like, it's okay for us to think. It's okay for us as Christians to say, wow, that's intense. Okay? So, there's a few kids in the room. Um, here's what I want. I want you uh, kids look at me, all right? The words that God uses. God was very upset with mankind. I'm going to need the adults to help with this too. The words that God uses in the verse that we're going to look at are not good. Okay, there are, there are nice words like friendly and funny and awesome and that we use to talk about our family. God doesn't use those words. Okay? What God uses are wicked, evil, and corrupt. Those are not good words. And so I want all of you guys, y'all are all going to help me with this, all right? We've got a few kids in the room, but adults, y'all help me with this too. I'm going to read Genesis 6, 5 through 7 and 11 through 13, in which God is speaking of creation. And so help me if y'all don't participate. <laughs> and I'm, every time you hear me use a form of the word wicked, evil, or corrupt, I want you to say ding, and I want you to hold a finger up and count 
So, okay, every time I say wicked, evil, or corrupt, you say ding and hold a finger up. And we're going to see how many times God uses, just in these six verses, how many times God uses it. Okay? So help me, y'all better, y'all better participate. Verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt. Oh, caught y'all sleeping. In God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. You're still sleeping. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness. Because of them, therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. How many times? How many did you count? Seven. Seven. Some of y'all count weird. If you used your thumb as the first one, I saw Patrick doing it and I saw May doing it. Y'all are weird. Where did y'all go to school? Good. I was gonna say, man, those yeah. Maybe 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 y'all learned that somewhere that I did. Anyway, I'll do this for two. But anyway, however you counted it, there were seven seven times in six verses. God says that creation has become mainly mankind has become wicked, evil, and corrupt. Now, God seems to be pretty clear about how he feels about mankind. They were in bad shape. And it's important to note here, though, okay? Because we talk about sin and we talk about, hey, everybody everybody sins, right? Like, we know that. We know that. I'm not trying to downplay that. But listen, we're not talking about an earth full of people who are trying really hard to please God and just mess up some. That's not what image is being conveyed here. What, we, what we're led to believe is that this is an earth full of people who are in total rebellion against God. Okay? That's the image that's going on here. And so God says, I'm starting over. <laughs> starting from scratch. Chunking it and <laughs> starting all over. And he chooses by his grace one man's family to start with. Noah. Noah had a wife and three married sons. And these are the only humans that will survive the flood. So God tells Noah to build an ark that will be the vehicle of their salvation. Literally, as God rains down judgment on the earth, Noah and his family will be safe inside the ark. Now, praise God that there are not any details from what happened outside the ark. Uh, man, I'm glad the focus is on Noah and his family as the rain happens because that, y'all, it's not pretty. Like, just, it's not. This is a terrible, awful thing to think about. And so our first instinct may be to think that this is a little harsh. Did, did all of mankind really deserve this end? One who has a wife who thinks that drowning would be the worst way to go. <laughs> That's you. I think this, this is awful. However, to think that God may be going overboard here actually reveals how we view sin. 
See, if we think that God went a little overboard, then we don't understand the heaviness of sin. It goes back to the garden. Come on, God, it was just a piece of fruit. Was it really worth kicking them out of the garden? And then in Noah's day, God, there had to be some good old boys. There were some good folks. Heart, what was the term? Uh, Heart and soul of the earth. Salt of the earth. There it is. There were some salt of the earth. Good folks on earth. God, surely not everybody was that bad. Listen, church, sin is sin. And sin is disobedience to a perfect, holy God. And for that action, punishment is totally deserving. Totally deserving. Innately, I believe, in my, I know in my life, when I begin to think this way, it's actually a defense for myself. Satan tries to convince me that I'm not that bad. Right? I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm glad Jesus died for me, but I mean, I'm not a bad, I'm not a murderer like Cain and Lamech. Listen, you may not be, but each and every one of us are sinners, and to sin is to disobey God. So, as sinners who disobey God, we are unworthy to stand before that holy God, and we deserve death. We do. Just as Adam and Eve were told in the garden, you want to make your own definitions of right and wrong? Go ahead, but you can't handle the weight and you will mess it up greatly. When we read the story of Noah, our question shouldn't be, wasn't the flood a little excessive? Why did God kill all these people? Our question should be, why would God save anyone? (laughs) What we find out quickly about Noah is that he was a dirtbag too. There's two actions that go on that we're not going to get into here either that were not good in Noah's family. And we recognize that these guys, I mean, they, they weren't bad, I mean, in the way that we think of it, but they were bad. They were sinners just like me and you. We recognize that life itself for Noah is simply a grace of God undeserved by all. So do you see how our view of sin affects our view of God? If you believe that God was in a bad place, that God, this was just, he was angry and he was throwing a little hissy fit, then you have a low view of sin. But if you recognize the heaviness of God's of sin, then you recognize, man, God was totally just to make this decision. So this is where we want to live. We want to live with a high view of sin and a high view of God. So the question is, was the flood a little excessive? Answer for note takers, no. Our sin is a big deal and we deserve death. So after this flood cleansing occurred, God brings them out of the ark. And he says to them what he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So God has restored his creation right? Everything is back to the way it was supposed to be. No, that's the saddest part of the whole story. I mean, it is sad that God wiped out the earth, but it's even sadder that the world is still broken. Through chapter 10, we're mostly hearing about Noah's family, but sometime after that, chapter 11 tells of a time when people are so against God's plan for their lives that they want to make a name for themselves, Instead of God, and we're right back to a world full of awful sinners. And so question number three that I want us to look at is what did the flood accomplish? And if you've never thought about that question, I want you to. 
okay? Because so many of us grew up in church and we always give God the credit he deserves. And that's a good thing. But I want you to wrestle with this for a second. God wiped out the earth and sin still existed. The, sin, the world was just as awful. So what did the flood accomplish? I, I felt like that was such an interesting question. Humans had gotten completely out of control. The flood seems to be this restart for man, kind of a second chance, right, to get things right. But we find out quickly as we read chapters 9 through 11 that the restart doesn't help. Sin is still a huge issue. The flood doesn't seem to have fixed the sin problem. And so there are two choices. When you think about the flood and you think about before the flood and after the flood and you wrestle with it, there are two options of thought that you can take. Number one, you can believe that God was trying to eradicate sin and failed miserably. That's choice number one. You can think that was God's plan. He was trying to get rid of sin. But he just, it didn't. Or, number two, God was doing something greater than what we see with our eyes. Now, I think it's safe to say that the all-powerful God, all God of the universe who spoke things into existence is not a failure. I think we're all good there. So, let's take number one off the table, and let's look at the second one. It must be that God was doing something greater and speaking of Noah, Pastor uh, John Piper, pastor, author, theologian John Piper says this, The story of Noah and the flood is incomplete in itself. God still hates sin and no remedy was found. I love this. The story cries out for an epilogue. Isn't that cool? I love that. So we get a clue to that epilogue. What it's saying is that the, the, the story of Noah ends and you go, this can't be, like, what? there must be something. There must be something else. We get a kind of a clue as to what that epilogue is in chapter 8. Noah, after he gets off of the ark, he immediately takes the clean animals uh, that he had on the ark with him and he makes sacrifices to God. In verse 21, says this of chapter 8, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from all from youth onward, why didn't y'all say ding? I got y'all. Sorry. All right. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. The blood of the sacrifice moves the heart of God to show grace. I'll say it again. The blood of the sacrifice that Noah offers moves the heart of God to show grace. But the blood of these animals could never be enough to offset the full heaviness of sin. It would take a big, incredibly perfect sacrifice to remove the guilt of sin as he views it by God. Church, the flood was not a fix for our sin. The flood was designed to remind man that there is no fix for sin. Even if God starts all over again, the one he starts back with will be a scoundrel and will mess it all up all over again. That's the point. Here's your answer. What did the flood accomplish? Listen, church, the flood was pointing forward to a real fix for sin. 
God used the flood to lay some imagery on something that is ahead. God's actions don't look to fix the past. They look to reveal the future. And listen, that's why God hangs his bow in the clouds. He hangs his bow in the clouds. Look at verse verse 9. At the end of everything, he says, I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You see, God commits to never bring a flood to the earth. And after that commitment, the Bible says he hangs his bow in the clouds. I want to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible, which again, I think is such an important It's been an important tool for us in discipleship in our home. And so if you are a a parent um, of kids, and honestly, even if you're not, buy the book. Like pretend like you're giving it as a gift and then just keep it. Because it's so helpful in in seeing the whole Bible in a Christ-centered way. I want to read to you the the part about Noah. I love this. It's our favorite at, at the Haney House. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. And the first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrow at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds where the storm meets the sun was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. And that's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. I want to show you these last two sections. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. You see, you and I are sinners. And we may try to cover up sin and pretend that we are good, but we are not. And because we are all sinners, we deserve the judgment of God. We are no better than Adam and Eve deciding for ourselves what we want to do. And God would have been totally justified to wipe us out and leave us for dead or to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden and turn his back on mankind and leave them to spend an eternity separated from him. But he didn't. He sends the flood. As a reminder. And then God would have been totally justified to kick Noah and his family out into the world. Say be fruitful and multiply and go back to his heavenly throne and leave them to spend an eternity separated from him. But he didn't. He sent his son, Jesus, to take on all the sin that we commit in life and to give up his body to die. Jesus took on death so that we didn't have to, and then he was raised to life so that we can have life. If you're already following Jesus, as we sing this last song, you should have some some, uh, passion to sing. 
If you didn't when you came in, for the love of all that's good, I just gave you some. Jesus Christ has been spoken of from the Old Testament all the way through. And God has redeemed us through his blood. And we didn't deserve it, just like Noah, church. If you think you deserved it, then you're not a Christian. If you think you deserve God's favor, then you're as lost as you were before you got dunked underwater. But if you recognize that you were undeserving of God's grace, you were a sinner just like Noah, but God showed grace to you. And God, and you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We believe that God will do that. And if you've not asked God to save you from sin in your life and surrendered to to your life, to, to Him, you can today. Jesus died for you so that you could stand before God righteous. When you begin following Jesus, you hand over your sinfulness onto Jesus and God places Jesus' righteousness on you. It's the great exchange that happens at salvation. Today, you can call on the name of the Lord to save you. If you're not a Christian in here, you've never trusted in Jesus' name, you can. We're actually going to have counselors that will be back by the back door. Our decision counselors will have a male and a female back there. And I'm going to be down front during this last song. If you want to talk to anybody about how you can trust in Jesus, we want, well, I want to help you with that. We want to talk with you. You can come forward to me or you can go back to them. But also, God doesn't save individuals. I mean, he does. But he saves individuals to be a part of the church. He saves us to be together. When the church is spoken of in the New Testament, it's never about an individual. It's about group, the assembly. If you're not a member of this church and would like to be, we'd love to talk with you about that. We had somebody begin the process of membership last week in our last service, or our 10 o'clock service, and it was so sweet. It was awesome. If you're not a member and would like to talk with us about that, we want to we figure that out. Any other thing that's laid on your heart, the altar will be open. Just if you want to come, lay your burdens before the Lord. Our decision counselors will be back there after I pray, or you can come talk to me. I'm going to voice a prayer. As soon as I say amen, we're going to stand and sing, and if you need to move, you move, and you go back or you go forward, all right? Let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we thank you, God, that you continue to show grace to boneheaded humans just like us. God, you are more than gracious and more than patient and more than forgiving. I know you've been that way in my life. God, I see it all throughout the Bible. God, I'm thankful for that. And it makes me want to shout. Father, I pray that for those of us who have trusted in you today, God, that that's where our hearts would be, God. There's a lot of heaviness. There's a lot of things going on in the world. There's things going on in families, God. There's difficulties, arguments, and problems. But God, you have saved us who have trusted in you by the grace that came through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we need to shout. Father, if there's anybody here who needs to make a decision to trust Christ, to join the church, God, to talk to us about being a part of a small group. God, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would move, move, God, in the hearts of the people here. We love you and we trust you and we thank you.
bless this time of response. In Jesus' name.